Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. This is the March 2022 edition, and I'm your host, Sam Ashu. This month, the emergency medicine practice issue is on postpartum complications, and we're going to talk with all three authors of the article. But before we dive in, as usual, here are some special announcements I want to make you aware of. First, if you don't already know, EB Medicine is launching an urgent care product. So if you work in an urgent care setting and are looking for medical education specific to your specialty, you can go to ebmedicine forward slash urgent care info and view the new publication there. Second, if you haven't heard me talk about this before, there is an annual clinical decision-making in emergency medicine conference that's held in Ponta Vedra, Florida every year. And this year, it will once again be hosted in Ponta Vedra, June 22nd through the 26th. All of our staff from EB Medicine will be there, and we look forward to meeting you in person. You can get more information about that conference at clinicaldecisionmaking.com. Third, if you haven't been to the website recently, EB Medicine launched the free open access medical education portion of the website with free references. That's right, free references on a multitude of topics, clinical pathways, risk management pitfalls, lots of information there. Just go to ebmedicine.net, click on Foam Ed, and take a look at the topics, emergency medicine, urgent care, and the rapid reference section. And lastly, ebmedicine.net, the home of emergency medicine practice and pediatric emergency medicine practice. Also, the mobile app on your phone. Lots of information about all of the things that you will see in the emergency department on a daily basis. It's an invaluable reference. If you're not already a subscriber, I highly recommend it. It is just a gigantic library of information searchable in the mobile app or at the website. And that's it. Without any further ado, let's dive into our discussion of postpartum complications in the emergency department with all three of this month's authors. My name is Nicole Yusek, and I am ultrasound director at St. Joseph's University Medical Center. Hi, I'm Joe Bove. I'm one of the emergency physicians at St. Joseph's University Medical Center. Hi, I'm Ridley Desai, and I am the chief resident at St. Joseph's University Medical Center. Wonderful. Thank you for being here and talking with us today about postpartum complications in the emergency department. All three of you are the authors for the March issue, the emergency medicine practice, and I'm really happy to have all of you here discussing this topic. I will tell you that postpartum complications are always frightening to me. I was just saying offline that in the 17 years I've been in practice, the cases that stick out in my mind are never the easy ones. They're the ones that were just life-threatening, frightening, and ones that uh, I really wished I had my OBGYN colleagues at arm's length to pull right in immediately. So I'm really happy that you authored this article. And let's dive in. So how about we start with why postpartum complications in the emergency department? 
Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think we've all had those cases. The young eclamptic patient coming in postpartum, the patient who has the intracranial hemorrhage that's being intubated, and those really stick with you as an emergency cl clinician. These patients are young. They generally don't have comorbidities. You don't really expect them to be as sick as they are. And then you think of it even more so. They have this newborn baby at home that is dependent on them. Usually their husband is at bedside asking what the prognosis is and how they're going to do. And Again, that really sticks with you as an emergency medicine provider. For me, I'm a new mom. I'm a mom of two, and I have a two-week-old at home. So I actually was writing this while, while I was pregnant, which was interesting because it was informative, but probably also not the right time to, <laughs> to be doing too much research on this. But again, it really just reminds you how important it is to be knowledgeable about these topics because there's a mom, there's a dad, and there's a newborn baby at home that's depending on you to make uh, good clinical decisions for, for these patients. Yeah, and I'll, I'll piggyback that. It's definitely something we're seeing on a somewhat regular basis. In one study, 20% of postpartum patients had complications, and of that, 25% of them saw care in the ED at least once, sometimes more. Certainly, there's a little bit of a gap in general knowledge taking care of these postpartum patients. It makes us feel uncomfortable as emergency providers, and therefore, knowing what to look for will help clarify some of these vague presentations that you'll face as an emergency physician. And that's why we took this initiative. Good. And in this article, there are a number of different illnesses covered, everything from hemorrhage to headache presentations, fever and infections, preeclampsia, help syndrome, and the peripartum cardiomyopathy as well. So let's tackle a couple of those here before we get started. When we talk about hemorrhage specifically, what kinds of hemorrhage are we, are we discussing and what kind of presentations would those be in the emergency department? Yeah, so for hemorrhage, we're looking at postpartum hemorrhage. It's essentially defined as about a liter of blood loss with signs and symptoms of hypovolemia. It can be characterized as early, about 24 hours postpartum or late. Um, which is 24 to 12 weeks postpartum. And the main cause is essentially uterine atenine in about 60 to 80% of cases. So that's really the one that you're looking out for. Certainly there's other cases, a uterine rupture, your lacerations, coagulopathies, retained placenta is definitely one to keep in mind, infections and vascular malformations. Yeah. And if you're practicing here in the United States, this has been one of the areas of focus for the Joint Commission and Hospital Compliance here for the last couple of years. So. We have been hearing more and more about postpartum hemorrhage and setting up protocols for, for teams to respond quickly in the emergency department and elsewhere throughout the hospital. And if you're not already familiar with the ebmedicine.net website, there is a free open access medical education section uh, of the website that actually has a small pocket reference about postpartum hemorrhage there as a reference for everything we're going to say today. So it's a handy reference to have. What about headache? Now, that's a common presentation postpartum. Yeah, headache is a very common complaint. And I think that's what can be a little bit frustrating for providers because you have to think about it. There's a lot of external factors that go into play and in why a postpartum patient could have a headache, right? They're not really eating. They're not really drinking, hydrating. They're also taking care of a newborn, right? So they're probably up all night and very sleep deprived. So it's hard to take away the more benign etiologies that can be due to those factors and then the more dangerous causes. When you look at the data, there was actually one study of uh, a prospective study of 985 patients and 
they actually reiterated this, that a lot of the causes of postpartum headaches can be musculoskeletal causes, tension headaches, migraine headaches. But then another retrospective study actually showed that about 10% of patients can actually have a more severe diagnosis. So although a lot of times there is a benign etiology behind the headache, we as emergency clinicians always have to think of worst case scenarios. So what should we be thinking about when they come in and they're saying that their head hurts? Things like cerebral venous thrombosis, which is not common. We really don't see that a lot. And as we'll see later, oftentimes just a regular CT head can miss the diagnosis two-thirds of the time. You know, we don't really have access to diagnostic imaging right away to, to make that diagnosis. Additionally, stroke, whether it's ischemic or hemorrhagic, can also cause headaches in these patients. And you have to remember, postpartum patients are set up for badness, right? As Riddy will mention, they have hypertensive disorders that they're prone to. Additionally, they're coagulopathic, right? We always worry about DVT and pulmonary embolism in these patients, but also they're higher risk of stroke and, again, cerebral venous thrombosis. So these are things that we always have to think about and keep in our differential for these patients. And then lastly, post-dural puncture headaches. Although maybe not dangerous, they can be very debilitating. So that new mom that's home trying to take care of their newborn, if they can't even sit upright to take care of that newborn, that's problematic. So you have to think of all the zebras when you're entertaining the differential diagnosis for postpartum headache. Yeah, that is a lot of things. And if you're listening and you have access to the publication, Table 4 on page 5 lists the differential diagnosis for postpartum headache, some of the common things, and some of those very frighteningly life-threatening things that we just mentioned. All right, so let's talk about then fever and infection. What kinds of infections are our postpartum patients prone to presenting with in the ED? So infection is really going to depend on what type of delivery they had. So you want to ask the patient if they had a cesarean section versus a vaginal delivery because you always have to think of wound infection. Additionally, mastitis is a very common infection that can happen within the first three months. And what happens there is when the breastfeeding mother gets engorged and they're not fully emptying their breasts, they can get clogged ducts, which can lead to inflammation and ultimately mastitis. Also cracked nipples. So if the infant isn't fully emptying the breast and has a, a bad latch, it can cause direct trauma. And those are all reasons why a patient can have mastitis. You should also think about with mastitis, sometimes a patient will only present with vague flu-like symptoms initially. So they might just say, oh, I feel off. I feel feverish, I feel achy, and then breast symptoms and redness come later on. So it's something important to think about. And then lastly is endometritis. So you naturally have a bacterial vaginal flora that can migrate up to the uterus. So even patients with C-section, they're actually at higher risk of getting endometritis. So if a patient is coming in and they're saying that they're having abdominal pain or uterine tenderness or some abnormal discharge, you definitely want to think about endometritis in those patients. Good. And then there is a spectrum of disorders along uh, the spectrum of preeclampsia and eclampsia. What kinds of things are we looking for when we're thinking about the differential for these patients? Sure. So preeclampsia is actually characterized by elevated blood pressure, right? You have a systolic blood pressure that's greater than or equal to 140 and a diastolic blood pressure that's greater than or equal to 90. And this happens after 20 weeks of gestation with clinical signs and lab abnormalities that are going to involve the hematologic system, the renal, hepatic, pulmonary, and neurologic system. And 
that's so vague, right? It's difficult to make this diagnosis because it involves every single system of the body. So the criteria that I'm going to talk you through is going to help you narrow down a patient's presentation with this. And lastly, if the patient comes in with features of preeclampsia and new onset seizures, then you can call this eclampsia. So in addition to that elevated blood pressure diagnosis, in a, uh, you'll have one of the following, whether it's a protein creatinine ratio that's greater than 0.3 in a random urine specimen, thrombocytopenia, which is platelets less than 100,000, creatinine, which is greater than 1.1, or a doubling from their baseline without any other history of renal disease. Transaminitis, that's two times the upper limit of normal, pulmonary edema, and a new onset persistent headache that really isn't accounted for by any other diagnoses, or if they have visual symptoms. So if any of my patients in the emergency department have this type of elevated blood pressure and any one of the criteria that I described, preeclampsia is going to be much higher or the highest on my differential. And the clinical features are actually a direct result of this generalized endothelial dysfunction that it causes. So when you keep this in mind, it's actually easy to understand and remember why we use the diagnostic criteria. So the pathophysiology involves maternal and placental factors. And in early pregnancy, if you have abnormal implantation, that can cause decreased placental perfusion. That activates the endothelial cells, causing a coagulation cascade, and that will increase your vascular permeability. So that helps you understand the headache component, the pulmonary edema, and the transaminitis, right? And the hypertension, the coagulopathy is going to result from this chronic inflammation or endothelial dysregulation that causes abnormal vascular tone. And risk factors for these to look out for are women who have a history of antiphospholipid syndrome, previous history of preeclampsia, hypertension, pregestational diabetes, a BMI greater than 30 pre-pregnancy, age greater than 40, a multi-fetal pregnancy, or use of assisted reproductive technology. Yeah, and once again, if you have access to the issue, Table 1 lists all of those risk factors for preeclampsia, which are important to keep in mind, and when you're taking a history from the patient, important to ask about. What about HELP syndrome? So HELP is a little easier to remember, right? Because HELP stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, low platelet count, and the specific criteria will include uh, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, which we don't usually diagnose in the emergency department because no one's really ordering peripheral smears to see schistocytes. But you're also looking for an LDH, which is greater than 600, and a bilirubin that's greater than 1.2, which are also markers of hemolysis. A platelet count that's less than 100,000 and an AST that's greater than 70. The pathogenesis of health is actually somewhat unclear, but it often coexists with preeclampsia, so it's important to keep that in mind. And it's hypothesized that the cascade of HELP syndrome is actually going to stop when the fetus is delivered. So even if you might not be able to diagnose HELP with 100% certainty in the emergency department, if you're suspecting it, then it's important to involve OB and even the intensivist team right away because these patients are going to require really close monitoring. Good. And then finally, the peripartum cardiomyopathy. Tell us about that. Yeah, so these are scary patients here, the peripartum cardiomyopathy patients. The take-home here is when you're going to see them as mainly postpartum. Most of the studies are showing they don't really present in the last month of pregnancy. It's more so uh, postpartum. 
mechanisms aren't really clear. It's one of those where there's not a really great consensus in, in what's causing it, but some risk factors that might cue you in are black race, multiparity, advanced maternal age. What you're really going to need here is, is probably bedside ultrasound to make the diagnosis, and we can get to that later. But the criteria hinges on the EF being less than 45%. So definitely your point of care ultrasound. And as you can see, if you have the, the manuscript, it's table three and you, you have to rule out other causes so that they don't have a history of CHF or an abscess of prior heart failure. So they couldn't have a history of heart failure as well. Yeah, that's a lot of things to talk about. So we're going to discuss each one of these topics in the typical approach of pre-hospital, what's the ED history and exam, then the diagnosis, and eventually the treatment. And we'll hit each one of these in all of those categories. And then I'll tell you about our personal experience in the issue household with preeclampsia, which was frighteningly terrible. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about the pre-hospital care. For everyone who's listening here who might be a, a medic or a paramedic, what kind of things are they capable of doing in the pre-hospital setting what are they going to be looking for? How can we help them maybe point us in the right direction when it comes to these kinds of diagnoses? Sure. So we actually have a really great rapport with our ALS team at our hospital, and I always appreciate a thorough medical and obstetric history. That includes how many days or weeks postpartum? Where Were there any complications during the pregnancy? Do they receive prenatal care? And that helps us create a really good picture about which teams and equipment we might need to mobilize in the ER really quickly. And in addition to that, a detailed cardiovascular, a neurologic exam with accurate vitals are really essential. And if the patient's really unstable, it might be necessary to divert to a more specialized center, whether it's a hospital that has OB services, a cardiac cath lab, a stroke center, so that picture that the EMS team paints for us is very important in providing further medical direction. Good. And then as they're transporting the patient, if they can identify a cause like uh, hemorrhage, for example, are there, is there anything they could do en route to the hospital in that kind of scenario? Sure. So if a postpartum patient in this pre-hospital environment has severe vaginal bleeding, the first thing that you want to do is check to see if there's an external tear. If that's the case, you can apply direct pressure to the area and then addressing while transporting the patient to the hospital for definitive care. But for patients who delivered outside of the hospital, there's no evidence of an external tear and the placenta hasn't been delivered, that can also cause some bleeding. So at that point, you'd want to place one hand on the uterus and apply gentle traction to the umbilical cord in order to deliver the placenta. If there's no external injuries and the placenta has already been delivered, then it's important to massage the uterus until it's firm because uterine atony is the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage and can be very devastating. And if oxytocin is available, you can consider giving that on the way as well. And lastly, if there's still profuse bleeding, you can give a gram of TXA over 10 minutes, but you definitely want to let the receiving hospital team know as soon as possible to mobilize their team, to prep the resuscitation room, prepare for massive transfusion protocol, and notify the OBGYN and intensivist team. Perfect. Is there anything unique about, say, postpartum patients who are presenting with altered mental status? Anything they could tell us in advance of arrival at the hospital or if they're having chest pain? Anything different that our pre-hospital colleagues might do that's not in a standard protocol? Would they still do EKGs? Would they still give aspirin? Those kinds of things. 
Absolutely. So I'll break it down into two things like altered mental status. So if for patients who are altered, having seizures or obtunded, obviously our airway protection is the number one priority at that point. If a patient had a severe headache and is now obtunded, you want to consider transporting them to a stroke center. You want to consider documenting or explaining to the team the pupillary size and reactivity before you intubate these patients. So they're forming their differential in their heads as well. For patients that are seizing with an elevated blood pressure, you're suspecting eclampsia. You're going to provide a loading dose of magnesium, which is four to six grams over 20 minutes. And then if there's an extended time to transport, you can also start a magnesium drip of one to two grams an hour. If the seizures don't stop with the magnesium, you can consider giving IV or IM benzodiazepines as you would in a seizure patient. And they should be transported very rapidly to a facility that has OBGYN and ICU care. Now, for the patients with chest pain or shortness of breath, your vitals and your EKG are essential. You want to check for hypertension and hypoxia in terms of your vitals. If the patient's hypoxic, consider pulmonary embolism or heart failure. And after you're giving supplemental O2, if the patient has evidence of lower extremity edema or rails on exam, you can treat it with nitrates and diuretics as you would in a non-pregnant patient. For patients with chest pain, especially if they're hypertensive and preeclampsia is suspected, an EKG should be done because preeclamptic patients are at risk for cardiac ischemia. So if they have a highly suspicious story for ACS as well, or there's EKG changes that are consistent with ischemia, then you can also give aspirin because it is safe in a postpartum patient. And again, it's just important to relay this information to the ED team because a patient might need to be transported to a center with a cardiac cath. Good. And then the last category were the infectious etiologies. So if the patient has fever, uh, perhaps hypotension, maybe there's concern for sepsis there, anything different about the pre-hospital care we would perform in that scenario? Absolutely. So these we really treat like our regular sepsis patients. If they're hemodynamically unstable, you can start with fluids. They can receive Tylenol as well. But your history is also really important. Focal symptoms like lower abdominal pain. Is there odorous discharge? Is there erythema of the breast or is there incisional pain? Because that can help distinguish the underlying cause of the fever while you're transporting the patient. But most important is that hemodynamic stability. Okay, so they've made it to our emergency department, and they're sitting here in front of us, and we are going to ask a few questions of our patient during the history. If we're discussing specifically hemorrhage, we mentioned the delivery type was important. What else are we going to want to know in this kind of scenario? So delivery type is definitely the more and most important question, but you also want to quantify the bleeding. We all know that patients can get very scared of blood, so a lot of times they'll say that they're bleeding a lot, but you really want to quantify it. How many pads are they going through? Are they soaking through those pads? Additionally, you want to know their history. Do they have any history of coagulopathy that could predispose them to postpartum hemorrhage? And then lastly, their symptoms. Are they getting dizzy, lightheaded? Do they syncopize? Are they symptomatic from the possibility of blood loss? And then if they're presenting with uh, a headache, other than just knowing uh, whether or not they had uh, spinal anesthesia, for example, what other kinds of questions would we look for in the history to help us make a correct diagnosis? So it's important to know about their prenatal care, because if they do have that history of preeclampsia, then that would be very relevant. 
Because although we think of those other dangerous causes of headaches, a lot of times if someone's hypertensive with a headache, it's really preeclampsia until proven otherwise. So you want to ask them about th their prior history. Additionally, do they have any other associated symptoms? Are they having neurologic symptoms like numbness, weakness, any abnormalities with their mental status? You can ask whoever's bringing them into the hospital if they can't answer for themselves. And of course, as you mentioned, knowing if they had an epidural can be relevant about how to diagnose and treat them. And then if we're talking about preeclampsia or eclampsia, the questions we're going to ask them, we're just going to go down that risk factor list, or is there anything else we'd need to know? The risk factor list would be very important. But again, just knowing their history. Did they get prenatal care? Do they have any history of hypertension before being pregnant? Could this just be gestational hypertension versus true preeclampsia? So really just knowing their prior history can be very relevant. And also what symptoms they're experiencing. Are they getting any of those vision changes that Rudy spoke about, a headache, anything like that? And then Rudy did mention for fever or infectious etiologies, asking about vaginal discharge, sources for fever, abdominal pain, those kinds of things. So we would ask those questions again if they weren't asked pre-hospital. What about now for the peripartum cardiomyopathy? Now, if we've got a patient and we're entertaining this as a diagnosis, is there anything in the history that might help us? Well, Joe mentioned a lot of the risk factors, so that would be beneficial. But then also... Getting a detailed history about their shortness of breath, is it, was it acute and onset that would make us go more down the pulmonary embolism route versus are they getting fatigued with exertion? Are they having any orthopnea? Also leg swelling. A lot of times postpartum patients will naturally get a little bit of leg edema from fluids and different interventions during delivery. But is it unilateral versus is it bilateral? Things like that can be really helpful to narrow down your differential for shortness of breath in these patients. And then if we move to the physical exam, so let's begin with hemorrhage. If we're going to examine someone whose chief complaint is hemorrhage in the postpartum period, what kinds of things are we looking for on exam or what's helpful, I should say, on examination? Yeah, so for physical exam or postpartum hemorrhage, just in general, you're doing a very detailed exam. This is not some exam from the corner of the room. You really need to examine these patients very thoroughly. Look at their skin color, look at their conjunctiva. You want to bring a chaperone with you to do a pelvic exam and make sure there's no retained placental tissue. You might be able to do a bedside ultrasound to help you aid there or look for any sort of vaginal wax. But again, this is just a very thorough exam in general, not just for the postpartum hemorrhage patient, but for all postpartum patients because their presentations can be so vague. And then for the headache patient, anything different there as far as the exam is concerned? Yeah. I mean, again, a full neurological exam, you want to look at their pupils. Is there any anisocoria? Are they having focal neurodeficits or non-reactive pupil? Anything that would shift your diagnosis to stroke? Are you able to look at their retina? Checking for bilateral disc edema might cue you into idiopathic intracranial hypertension. So things of that nature. And then for patients who have preeclampsia, eclampsia, or maybe we're entertaining HELP syndrome, anything specific on examination there that might help us make that diagnosis? Certainly your abdominal exam might get focal tenderness in the right upper quadrant as it relates to HELP syndrome. That could be something that's important. We uh, in the issue household have three children, and with our third child, my wife experienced preeclampsia in the 
postpartum period, which if you are not aware and you're listening, you can make this diagnosis up to six weeks postpartum. So she was in that period of time when in the middle of the night, she developed some abdominal pain, had been taking some ibuprofen after delivery, and we just kind of assumed this was gastritis or something, and we tried some Pepsid and all of the GI stuff we had at home. Nothing seemed to be working, and eventually she said, you know, I think I need to go to the hospital, and I said, okay. And so we actually went to the emergency department where I work, and one of my partners saw her. Everything in the history was negative, and she just had some epigastric pain, and he went to examine her and elicited a little bit of right upper quadrant tenderness, and her blood pressure was up. And he said, oh, you know, any history there? No, everything was fine in the, in the pre-delivery time. But he rightfully said, well, you know, maybe it's her gallbladder. We'll do some studies. We'll send some labs. We'll check her liver functions. And we'll keep an eye on the blood pressure. And I said, it's probably just because she's having some pain. She's never had high blood pressure before. So she got medication for pain. She got a couple of doses of morphine and then got an ultrasound. And as we're waiting for test results, we're sitting in a dark room. Of course, these things always happen in the middle of the night. So at 3 a.m., she says, um, do you think they could give me something for my headache? And I said, you didn't mention a headache earlier. She said, yeah, I have a dull kind of throbbing headache. And I said, well, you've had some morphine already. And she goes, yeah, I really don't think that helped. Maybe we could try some Tylenol. And I said, okay, well, I'm just going to go get my colleague. And she goes, okay. And while you're at it, where is that flashing light coming from? And I said, we're sitting in a completely dark room. What flashing light? And she said, I just, I got this headache and it feels like there's a flashing light here somewhere in the room. And then I went and told my partner and I said, hey, listen, she didn't mention this earlier, but now she has a headache and she's complaining about a flashing light. And so he came back in and her pressure was higher. And then the diagnosis became very clear at that point. And she ended up spending the better part of a week in the hospital treating postpartum preeclampsia, which is a challenge in and of itself because typically, you know, deliver the placenta and there you are. But in this case, there is no placenta to deliver. So that was a, a terrifying experience, but a good reminder that preeclampsia can occur in the postpartum period as well. And if you're not really aware of it as a diagnosis, then here's your moment if you're listening. In the Eshoo household, we became very acquainted with the diagnosis. And so it's important to us, but I'm happy that we're talking about it today when we're talking about diagnostic studies. So now we're in the emergency department, we've gone through the history and the physical, and we're trying to figure out what it is we're gonna use to assess the patient. What's helpful when we're talking about hemorrhage? You mentioned ultrasound already, Joe? Yeah, definitely ultrasound can come to be a useful aid here, specifically as it relates to retained placental tissue. Again, one of the most common causes of postpartum hemorrhage we mentioned was uterine atony. And unfortunately, there's not a standard lab or imaging confirmatory test for that. Certainly, you think about hemoglobin, but we do know that acute changes in blood volume are reflected in the hemoglobin. Even two-thirds of patients with 500 to a liter of blood loss in one study didn't have a drop of the hemoglobin greater than two. So it's really not going to be the most reliable. But you want to think about your CBC. You want to think about your ultrasound. And then if they're presenting with headache, does imaging help in this population? Imaging may help depending on what is the cause of the headache. As mentioned before, if someone has hypertension and a headache, it really is preeclampsia until proven otherwise. That's how I think of it initially, hypertensive versus not hypertensive. If they are not hypertensive, then really getting a good history and physical is going to be key because we talked about a lot of benign etiologies that can cause headaches, but we always have to think about those dangerous causes as well. So if they present altered 
or have an abnormal neurologic exam or have any abnormal uh, meningeal signs, then that's where further imaging is going to be imperative. This might be a patient that you might have to call a stroke code on, and they might need to get an emergent CT of their head and possibly even a CT angiogram because we know that we have to think about dissection in these young patients as well. Also, patients who have intracranial hemorrhage, a lot of times those are from aneurysm. So getting a CTA in a patient who has an intracranial hemorrhage can be very beneficial because up to 77% of those patients, it's attributed to an aneurysm. Mm-hmm. Additionally, if you're thinking cerebral venous thrombosis, that's when you really need to think about what diagnostic modality you're going to use. Because as mentioned earlier, up to two-thirds of non-contrast CT heads can be normal. So if you're just the provider who just says, oh, they have a headache, I'll just order that CAT scan, they feel better, it's normal, you discharge them, you could be missing something. So for those patients, you really want to think about the next step. So the gold standard for cerebral venous thrombosis is your MRV, your MR venography, which can be challenging, right? Because not everyone works in a big academic center that has accessibility to MRI. But there's actually some decent studies out there, one meta-analysis and one smaller study that actually showed that the accuracy of a CT venography is actually pretty decent in comparison to MRI. So If you are in that more rural place and you might have to transfer a patient for an MRI, or if you just can't get the MRI right away, you can think about getting a a CT venography instead of the MRI. But just knowing that the MRI is always going to be the gold standard for these patients. So if you're assessing someone who has a postpartum headache and let's say they are not hypertensive, so we'll take preeclampsia out of the picture. Is it based on the history that you would then select the next appropriate imaging test, depending on what you're most suspicious of? I think a lot of people would say, okay, if they're not preeclamptic and they have a pretty severe headache, so it's more than just a benign headache, they're going to move forward with some kind of imaging. But it seems like the non-contrast CT is actually not very beneficial in that kind of scenario as a first step in, in the evaluation of really most of these conditions. I agree. It may not be the most beneficial test because it can miss a lot of these diagnoses. But at the end of the day, it is the most accessible. It's Mm -hmm. so easy to get. So I wouldn't necessarily forego getting the CT non-contrast, but it's just really important for our listeners to know that a normal non-contrast CT head does not mean you're done if you're really suspicious for these patients. Again, if they have an abnormal neurologic exam or you're worried about increased intracranial pressure, maybe you did ultrasound of their eyes and their nerve was enlarged, or sometimes you just get that spidey sense as an emergency doctor and you're like, something's not right about this patient. I need to take it a step further. If you get to that point, just know that the simple CT head is not going to be enough. And at that point in time, you're probably going to have to get the MRI. But knowing that if you can't access that right away, you can always do the CT venography as well. Yeah, that's very helpful. Okay, so what if they're presenting with a fever, maybe some hypotension, or we're entertaining an infectious etiology here, something more than just mastitis? Is there any role for labs and imaging? And what kinds of diagnostics are we looking for in the ED in that scenario? So the nice thing about fever and infection in the postpartum patients is that it really is a clinical diagnosis. So you can get so much information from getting a good history and physical exam on these patients. 
So there's not always a time that you're going to have to do further diagnostic imaging. A lot of times you're going to just be able to examine the patient and make your diagnosis. But there are certain instances where you might want to take it a step further. For example, if there's a patient who had a C-section and you're worried about a deeper infection like an abscess, that might be a patient that you're going to have to get a, a CAT scan on just to, to rule that out. Additionally, if a patient has been on antibiotics for mastitis for more than two to three days and they're still symptomatic and it's not getting any better, that might be a patient that would benefit from an ultrasound just to make sure that there's not an underlying abscess that would need to be drained. And then additionally, for patients who are presenting with um, symptoms of endometritis, again, also a clinical diagnosis. But if you're worried about pelvic abscess or if they're bleeding and you're worried about retained products, they could benefit from an ultrasound as well. So just always keep in mind that further diagnostic tests may be indicated, but they're not always necessary in this patient population. And is there a role for... CT in the diagnosis of endometritis, if we're looking for potential abscess versus endometritis, would we do a CT and then follow it with an ultrasound in that scenario? In that scenario, ultrasound would be more beneficial because you're looking at the pelvic organs. And so a transvaginal ultrasound would be helpful in that scenario. And then for the people with the cardiopulmonary complaints, chest pain, shortness of breath, what kind of diagnostics are helpful in that scenario? Yeah, so I think you approach this patient on your initial HNP with your point of care ultrasound because that's where you're going to get the majority of your information right up front. It's going to create your differential diagnosis. You're going to look for reduced ejection fraction, B lines, pleural effusions, maybe their IVC is dilated. You can also look for alternative diagnoses such as PE because their RV dilated. Etc. So you're getting a lot of information just on your initial HMP and point of care ultrasound. Certainly, they talk about chest X-ray being helpful again for alternative etiologies. It's not necessarily going to cue you into postpartum cardiomyopathy, but you don't know that's the diagnosis when they first hit the door. So you have to consider all presentations. But again, if you're moderate or average to experienced sonographer, I don't know that an x-ray is going to change your management. You're probably going to get it after doing your ultrasound just to be complete. But I think the majority of your information is going to come from that point of care ultrasound. Certainly, you also want to think about other diagnostics such as EKG, whether or not there's a STEMI, whether that's from a coronary artery dissection or from an acute occlusion. That's not your job to solve, but your job is to get that patient to the cath lab. Ultimately, the treatment in the ED is going to be very similar. And in terms of laboratory studies, you have troponins and BMPs. Your troponins will help you rule out an MI. And your BMP is also helpful in your pregnant and postpartum patients. If it's less than 100, you can be uh, pretty sure that there's no heart failure present. For the patients with the postpartum cardiomyopathy, can their troponins be elevated just from the cardiomyopathy? Correct. So the troponins are really not going to be helpful too much. You really need to take it in, into clinical context. The key with the cardiomyopathy, again, is really putting that probe on the chest and looking for a reduced ejection fraction. Less than 45% is going to help you cue it in in an otherwise healthy female. Okay, good. That's the diagnostics. What about treatment? So let's start with hemorrhage like we had before. If we've got someone with postpartum hemorrhage and we're talking about emergent therapy in the emergency department, what kinds of things can be helpful in that scenario? Yeah, so some of this is mentioned in the pre-hospital section, but just to reiterate what may or may not have been done pre-hospital, 
We talk about breastfeeding, which can help contract the uterus. We talk about emptying the bladder. Oxytocin versus other uterotonic agents should all be considered. None of them in the studies have been shown to be superior. So you can go down this pathway very quickly and using multiple agents at once, but certainly consider the oxytocin. Less invasive maneuvers such as uterine massage, which is essentially one arm or one hand on the outside or external aspect of the uterus and one internal and you're doing massages there. You want to consider TXA, which was shown in the women's trial, which was a uh, randomized multinational double-blind controlled trial of about 20,000 women. And they showed death due to postpartum hemorrhage was 1.5% in the TXA group versus 1.9% in the placebo group. And the real take home is that there was an even stronger benefit when they looked at the subgroup within three hours. And that kind of translates to the other literature on TXA, where we know you want to give it as soon as possible once bleeding's identified. And in that group, the mortality rate was 1.2% compared to 1.7%. And that was another statistically significant difference. So you definitely want to think about all of these measures. You want to think about not waiting necessarily too long before starting the next one and kind of just going one after the next in rapid succession, because these are very devastating diagnoses for the postpartum patient. And then if they are presenting with a headache and we are looking at therapies in the emergency department, obviously this is very diagnosis dependent, but let's say they have cerebral venous thrombosis, the rarest of the headaches. As far as treatment goes, is that something we're even bothering to initiate in the ED? Obviously we're going to obtain consultation for treatment, but how is that treated? So cerebral venous thrombosis, the treatment of choice is anticoagulation which makes sense, right? Because these are coagulopathic patients and they have thrombosis that's preventing blood from getting out of the brain. So they have that increased pressure that predisposes them to bleeding in the brain, essentially. And so if we can anticoagulate them and stop and prevent that thrombosis, it's beneficial. So all the studies, there's actually not that many studies about cerebral venous thrombosis treatment. And that's why it's very important to get your consultants on board as quickly as you can whether that's neurology, neurosurgery, because these are going to be very multidisciplinary patients that you're treating, very sick patients. So as mentioned in the paper, there's two randomized controlled trials that actually look at heparin and low molecular weight heparin as compared to placebo, and they did find benefit. And additionally, one of the studies actually showed increased benefit with low molecular weight heparin. So if the patient has no contraindications to that, generally we think about renal failure or if the anticoagulation is going to need to be immediately reversed, where you would probably prefer heparin in that scenario, then low molecular weight heparin is going to be your treatment of choice. Interestingly, and probably one of the more interesting things that I found out from learning about a CVT is that intracranial hemorrhage may not always be a contraindication to anticoagulating these patients which is actually um. really scary to think about. This patient has cerebral venous thrombosis. They also have a concurrent hemorrhage. Secondary to that, these patients may still need anticoagulation. From the studies that I mentioned before, 34 of the 79 patients actually had a hemorrhage upon presentation in the studies. And then additionally, another study, 15 patients had hemorrhage prior to treatment, and none of these patients had any worsening of their hemorrhage once they were treated with anticoagulation. 
Wow. So it really just goes to show you that, again, you need to get your consultants on board and to figure out the the next best steps for these patients. But just remember that anticoagulation is going to be key. And just because they have a concurrent ICH does not necessarily mean that you're not going to anticoagulate these patients, which is a little bit counterintuitive. Yeah. And these people are postpartum as well. So frequently still experiencing lochia or some vaginal bleeding. And that is also not a contraindication for anticoagulation. No, these patients might still have some bleeding secondary to being postpartum. But at the end of the day, the thing that's going to cause the most morbidity and mortality is going to be the cerebral venous thrombosis. So you really need to prioritize treating that. Wow. Okay, let's talk about infections. So if it's uh, benign mastitis, this is oral therapy or is there need for IV therapy for these patients? So for mastitis, you don't want to forget about supportive care for these patients. So a lot of times we equate mastitis to antibiotics, which is true. And the one study that we mentioned in the paper actually shows increased improvement with the addition of antibiotics. But you have to remember that there's a lot of supportive care that you have to counsel your patients on. So using cool compresses to the breasts, making sure that they're efficiently emptying. So that's the most common reason why you get mastitis. Maybe the, the newborn isn't latching well and isn't transferring enough milk out of the breast, so they're getting engorged. So it's really important to tell the patient that they need to continue pumping or direct breastfeeding while they're undergoing treatment for mastitis. But traditionally, it's going to be oral antibiotics, and you're going to usually give them about 48 to 72 hours to see improvement. And then again, if there's no improvement, that's when you're going to be thinking, do I need an ultrasound? Do they need incision and drainage? And do they need anything further? But traditionally, it's going to be PO antibiotics and again, good supportive care, cool compresses, NSAIDs for pain and breast emptying. Mastitis can be very painful for patients. So you don't want to forget that they're a sensitive postpartum patient and we have to counsel them on all those things as well. Good. That's very helpful. Thank you for mentioning that. And then if we're dealing with endometritis or even if it's a simple C-section wound infection, what kind of therapies are recommended in those scenarios? So treatment of endometritis will oftentimes depend on their group B strep status. So we didn't mention this earlier, but that is also something very important to ask on the history of the patient, especially if they're there for anything fever or infection related. So patients who are group B strep negative, you're traditionally going to be giving those patients IV clindamycin and gentamicin. But if they're group B strep positive, there's been growing resistance to clindamycin. So for those patients, you're going to want to add ampicillin or you can even do monotherapy with ampicillin sulbactam. So traditionally, these patients are getting IV antibiotics and getting admitted. A lot of times they are going to be pretty sick. On the off chance that you could potentially do PO antibiotics, you probably will, will want to get your OB consultants involved just to make sure that they have appropriate follow-up and just to make sure that the antibiotics are working and that everything is resolving themselves. But traditionally, those IV antibiotics are going to be the treatment of choice for these patients. So if this is a well-appearing, stable patient and I call the OB and they say this person can go home on oral antibiotics, that's not something completely far-fetched and out in left field, that there is a role for that kind of stable patient to go home on oral antibiotics and not have to stay in the hospital. 
Yeah, especially depending on your patient population, right? If you have a patient that you know is reliable, can follow up with OB within the next one to two days, it's definitely reasonable. And just making sure that you're giving them the appropriate PO antibiotics. And again, follow-up is going to be essential. Okay, then let's talk about treatment for our preeclamptic, eclamptic, maybe seizing patients uh, or those with HELP syndromes, that whole category of patients. Where are we starting therapy for these patients? Sure. I will actually just break it down by the diagnoses or by the umbrella. So for preeclampsia, the first line antihypertensive is going to be your beta blockers. So you can start with labetalol, 10 to 20 milligrams IV as a first dose. But it's really important. I actually have to remind myself that when we're giving these medications during very stressful situations to remember about the side effects that it can cause. So this is a non-selective beta blocker and it should be avoided in patients who have asthma or pre-existing heart conditions like heart failure, bradycardia, or, you know, AV block. But labetalol is the quickest onset of action, about one to two minutes, and then you repeat your blood pressure every five to 15 minutes. If you can't give labetalol and there is a contraindication, you can give hydralazine or nifedipine. These are both second-line antihypertensives that could be used as well. And most important question is going to be for women who are breastfeeding, right? What can I take when I go home? So beta blockers like labetalol, metoprolol, propranolol are actually first-line because they have the least transfer into breast milk. But calcium channel blockers are also safe. ACE inhibitors actually enter the breast milk at low levels, but neonates can actually become hypotensive and oliguric. So I would probably stay away from those and try the other ones prior and make sure that they have close outpatient OBGYN follow-up. And thiazides are also known to reduce breast milk volume and suppress lactation, but it is known to be safe at 50 milligrams or less daily. But if I do have other good options, such as the beta blockers or the calcium channel blockers, then I would just avoid it overall. In terms of eclampsia, when a patient is seizing, these seizures are actually self-limited in most cases. But what we do is we'll give magnesium sulfate not only to stop the seizure, but also to prevent recurrent seizures. And a Cochrane review that included 15 trials involving about 11,000 women revealed that there was a significant reduction in mortality and recurrent seizures in women with eclampsia when mag sulfate was administered. So after you give a loading dose of four to six grams, you're going to start these patients on a maintenance dose of one to two grams an hour. And of course, important to include our supportive therapy. If they're eclamptic and they're in status epilepticus, you want to protect their airway and things like that as well. You want to speak to the intensivist team, the OBGYN team immediately also. And now when we go to HELP syndrome, so... It was thought that steroids might play a role in disrupting that pro-inflammatory features of the disease, but another Cochrane review that looked at a steroid use included about 550 women found no difference in risk of maternal death and severe maternal morbidity with their use of steroids. So the only difference that was noted was that the patients in the corticosteroid group had an increased platelet count after therapy. And at this point, it doesn't really mean that much to us because we really want to look at patient-centered outcomes. So in the ED, steroids aren't really administered when HELP syndrome is suspected, but supportive therapy, close monitoring for other sequelae like ARDS, pulmonary edema, liver failure, and renal injury are important. So if we make the diagnosis of preeclampsia in the ED and we're administering the antihypertensives, walking through 
a protocol, escalating doses of meds. The goal for blood pressure reduction in such a patient would be what? Is our goal to get it below 140 over 90? Yes, that's usually the goal. You usually want it to be at least in the 120s, 130s, over 80s. It should be below 140 over 90. You don't want to drop it too much because some of these organs are perfusing with higher blood pressures to begin with for you don't know how long. So, And the magnesium administration for our preeclamptic patients is prophylactic, not meant to do anything with blood pressure, right? Correct. Exactly. It is prophylactic. Yeah, I recall early on in my career also having a, a patient who was 15 with new onset seizures who came in altered and had numerous seizures and about halfway through the ED course delivered a baby, which was unknown to anyone, family members, paramedics, ED staff. And so that was another one of those terrifying cases that quickly cemented in my mind the treatment for eclampsia. But frequently I get questions from people about administering magnesium in preeclamptic patients and just giving the mag and not treating the blood pressure and assuming that the magnesium was going to bring down blood pressure. So it's an important thing to remember. It is a smooth muscle relaxant. It might result in a very minimal reduction in blood pressure, but that's not the point of administering it in this patient population. So. There is an excellent pathway at the end of the publication on page 21 for management of the postpartum patient with elevated blood pressure. So if you have access to it, I recommend that. And then the page directly preceding also discusses the pathway for headache, also very helpful to have. Now, when we talk about the cardiomyopathy patients, anything in the way of treatment that we should be starting in the emergency department immediately that's helpful? Yeah, so... Again, you might not know it's exactly going to be peripartium cardiomyopathy, but you're really lumping this into the diagnosis of heart failure. Certainly, your cardio colleagues will help you hone down the diagnosis. But in the event that you got your history, you got your physical, you did your bedside ultrasound, you're looking at a reduced EF, you have some V lines, you're going to be moving right to nitrates and then followed by diuretics. You're going to be keeping these patients on the monitor. This is not the patient that's going to the vending machine or walking to the bathroom. They're at high risk for AFib and arrhythmias. They're staying in the bed. And of note as well, which might be a little bit different, is if their EF is significantly reduced, let's say below 35%, they are going to be a candidate for anticoagulation. Dosing and therapy is pretty equivalent to the non-pregnant patients as well, whether you're going to give them a DOAC or what you and your colleagues decide. And then one topic that I'm sure is going to come up frequently with all of these patients, they're all postpartum. So breastfeeding is a question, regardless of what we're treating them for. Is there a possibility of continuing to breastfeed throughout their treatment while they're in the hospital? Yeah, so this is something as a new mom, I'm obviously very passionate about it. Again, I have a two-week-old at home, and one of my kind of pet peeves at work is when people just constantly tell the mom to pump and dump, pump and dump, when there's not a lot of good evidence behind that for many of the medications that we're using for these patients. But you also have to remember that the mom, she's one week postpartum, she just went through birth. That's traumatic on the body. She's trying to establish breastfeeding and her supply with the newborn. And early on, a mother that comes in, she needs to empty her breasts every three hours. Otherwise, you risk getting complications like mastitis, engorgement, clogged ducts, a decrease in supply, things that we're trying to avoid based off our, our conversation today. So when that postpartum patient comes in and you know that they're breastfeeding, it's very important to get a pump bedside for that patient. 
at least in our emergency department, we know where the pump is, but then finding all the other things can take a while. And then five, six hours goes by, and that can be problematic for that new mother. Additionally, the majority of medications that we're giving are compatible with breastfeeding. And mothers who are breastfeeding might not feel comfortable with that. They have this thought, I shouldn't be taking anything. I'm breastfeeding. I, I can't take anything. I don't even want to take Motrin or Tylenol. So you really want to counsel them that the medications that we're giving them are safe for the diagnosis that we're treating. Additionally, a lot of times further imaging might be needed, whether that's a CT or MRI, which requires IV contrast. And interestingly, there are studies that demonstrate very, very small amounts of these contrast materials in the breast milk for mothers. And these amounts are actually a lot lower than what you would give to the infant if they came and they needed these scans. So when they get the CT and then they're told to pump and dump, it can be very stressful for a mom, again, who's trying to establish the breastfeeding relationship with their child. So make sure you reiterate that they don't have to pump and dump. And remember that other people might be telling them different things along the way. Maybe the, your protocol or policy at your hospital is a little bit outdated and the tech might say, you got a CAT scan, you should pump and dump for 24 hours or, or whatever their protocol says. So really just, again, taking that extra time to be compassionate to the breastfeeding mother and reminding them that the medications that you're choosing for them are safe can go a very long way in that postpartum hormonal crazy state. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's very, very important. And I can certainly empathize with hospital procedures and protocols being outdated. So uh, a little bit of consultation with your reference, come to EB Medicine, look up this article, take a look at some of our free references, whatever helps to get the correct and most up-to-date information to you at the time you're making that decision. You mentioned some things in the controversies and cutting edge section. Let's start with endovascular therapies. So when we're talking about our patients who present with a headache and have any one of these life-threatening diagnoses, there are some cutting edge treatments now that can be delivered endovascularly. Tell me more about those for this population. So it's important to remember that although anticoagulation is the mainstay of treatment for cerebral venous thrombosis, for those patients that continue to decline despite getting this treatment, there are alternative options such as endovascular therapy. The data when you look at it is not the greatest. There was one systematic review that had 156 patients, and a lot of those patients did have complications such as bleeding and death, and it was deemed non-negligible. So the risks and benefits have to be weighed out. But again, it is something that you can consider in those patients who continue to decline despite giving them the low molecular weight heparin or traditional heparin. Additionally, there was a 2015 systematic review that looked at mechanical thrombectomy, and their results actually look promising. They said 84% of their patients had a great outcome. But when you actually dive into the data, a lot of the studies are case reports or case series. And we know that can introduce a lot of bias. You're always going to want to, you know, mention the, the great stories of these patients making a full recovery and not necessarily the times that uh, a patient didn't do as well. So you want to take that into consideration. So again, getting all your consultants on board, neurology, neurosurgery, um, interventional, to figure out the best uh, course of action for these patients is imperative. 
And then one last kind of cutting edge test that we can use for our postpartum patients is thromboelastography. Now we're using some of these when assessing trauma patients, but there's a role for them in the, the postpartum patient. Yeah, this is up and coming. We have this in our main campus, but our satellite campus, it's kind of a send out, might take a little bit of time. But if you're getting one of these patients rolled into your resuscitation bay, it's something you definitely want to keep on your radar. If you're a trauma center, you're already used to using it. You're not going to really get a good randomized controlled trial. They're difficult to perform in bleeding, critically ill, obstetric patients. So sufficient evidence is a little bit lacking, but you could use your overall knowledge base and prior experience in trauma patients and maybe relate that to the obstetric patients because coagulopathies are going to be present. They're going to be very complex. And you want to use all of the information that you have available and all of the surrounding colleagues and knowledge base available to you to resuscitate these patients just because a lot of these patients or some of these patients are going to die despite your best efforts. Yes. And that's really a good segue into thanking the three of you for authoring this article. There is a lot of information here and a lot of conditions, but I really like the approach of the patient comes to us in the emergency department and they come chief complaint driven. And then we hone in on the diagnosis based on what they tell us and what we can elicit from the history. There are just a lot of things that can happen to patients who are pregnant and in the postpartum period, it's a wonder that the human race has survived. Honestly, after reading stuff like this, it just makes me so paranoid. But regardless, most pregnancies are uncomplicated and do very well with very little intervention. But when they do come to the ED, I am happy to have this resource in my pocket. So thank you very much to the three of you for authoring it. This is fantastic. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap for this month's episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu, and thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy listening to this podcast every month, please give us a rating in whatever app you are using to listen to us and spread the word. Tell your friends. We welcome feedback. Go to ebmedicine.net and use the contact form. There is free open access medical education content. There is the new urgent care publication. And of course, there's the emergency medicine and pediatric publications. We strive to provide the best content for your continuing medical education needs. And if you've got feedback, we want to hear it. Good or bad, we'll take it. Thanks, everybody. Until next time, be safe. <laughs>